1: Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chansey. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success, along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions podcast. This is Matt Chancy, And today on the podcast, we're excited to welcome Eric Pelton, Eric had a book that he put out there, Building a Bold Brand, and he has been an intellectual IP branding attorney for 23 years in his own firm already, and he just turned 50. So, he's he's been uh, doing his own thing for a long time here. So, um, very excited to have him on the show. Thanks for coming on, Eric. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. So, you know, look, I always kind of like to start from the beginning when you were in law school, did when did the whole, I want to be a branding and IP attorney pop up? Was that your initial thought of going to law school? I can't imagine that it was, but if it was, I got to know.
0: No, no. I didn't know what I was going to do when I started law school. I barely knew what I was going to do when I finished law school. Um, I went to law school because I had finally gotten a little bit more serious about education and learning and was enjoying it. And I said, I want I want to actually keep learning now that I'm focused on it a little bit. And law school was a great place to do that, to challenge myself, to learn how to think and research and write. And all along, For much of the time in law school, I kind of thought, I actually don't want to be a lawyer. I just want the education. And what happened was this was the late 90s when, or the mid to late 90s when the internet was, you know, just really starting and beginning to boom and kind of changing a lot of things in the way we work, the way we communicate and all these things. And that was starting to have a ripple effect through the law. And that's what piqued my interest. That was not only changing the laws of communications and intellectual property and impacting that, but it was also changing the way that we do business and that we interact with the government and with our clients and all those things as, as lawyers and law firms. And that's what piqued my interest.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. And I, I love the fact that you said, I was really there for the education, not per se to just be able to tell somebody you were a lawyer, because more times than not, I've heard that the other way around. I just wanted to tell people as a lawyer, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with the education. So, and I try to tell everybody like, look, you go to school for the education. Most people don't even understand what the credentials mean and the time that you invested in a lot of that stuff and what you really learn. They just know the headlines around it. So, Get the education.
0: Yeah, yeah. And story related to that is, you know, I went to a good law school, but it's not a top-ranked law school. I got good grades, but I didn't get top grades. I wasn't, I didn't win any awards or cum laude or anything like this. My academic record was very average. But once you get out and you start working, in my experience, where you went to school, what your grades were, what your SAT or you know, uh, law school exam records were nobody cares. It's all about what can you do for me? What have you done for other people recently? And how's that going to help me? And I've found that to be, you know, grateful, you know, incredibly helpful in my career.
1: I, I agree. You know, I think if you understand, um, from, from an education perspective, I think if you understand how the whole educational game game works, Right. And I call it a game because I think it is if you're playing it at kind of the highest level. But like to get into the right schools and get the right track, I think you're right. If you you have to start playing that game at a much earlier age, probably even high school today, knowing exactly the type of school you want to get into and then the job that that will lead in the doors that will open. But if you're not dialed into that path that early on and then still committed to it by the time you actually get there, because those are formative years where you certainly change. Right. Then I agree with you 100 percent when you finally get in the whatever gig it is, like you're going to create your own opportunity there once once the door has been opened. So I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So your background is a little different from somebody else that, you know, I've talked to some other, you know, intellectual patent trademark attorneys before, but I can't tell you that I've ever talked to any that started off working as a trademark examiner in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. um, Like, you know, that is really interesting to take this internal skill set that you developed working on the inside and then to go out and work on the outside. Like explain how that, was that a plan to do that, to kind of reverse engineer that, or did it just was good fortune?
0: I wish I could say it was a conscious plan because it's worked out rather well, but it was more the good fortune. The first job, first full-time job I got after law school was because somebody told me oh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is hiring. You're interested in intellectual property and technology. This might be a good opportunity for you. And I got an interview and I got hired. And it was a great, great education all about the subject matter of trademarks and how to protect them and how the system works. Because in the world of trademarks and trademark registration, the system is so complicated that knowing the system from the inside really is a... An education of itself. And so great people there, great education and training for me. I realized I was not cut out to work for the federal government for the rest of my life. I realized that I had this other, you know, creative entrepreneurial bug and the internet exploding at the same time was really, you know, I I was just waiting for the opportunity to take that leap and go out on my own. And I coded HTML, my Original website, as crude as it was, there weren't a lot of other trademark lawyers with any kind of websites at that time in 1999 when I launched. So that really helped set me apart and helped people all over the country and even all over the world find me.
1: I got you. There you go. Well, that's uh, uh, that's what I always tell people. Had I have known the internet was going to be a thing when I went to college in the early to mid nineties, I might have studied something in the internet a little bit to learn how to do that stuff. But you know, I don't think we really knew back then. So, talk about that a little bit. How did you know, the explosion of the internet in the late nineties and you kind of having this exposure to being a patent uh, you know, in the patent space, how did those two converge in your mind to create this opportunity that you leaned into?
0: So they converged in ways where I saw that most other law firms were not yet on the internet and didn't know how to use it, what to do with it. So number okay. one, it was just You know, traditionally, when a lawyer goes out on their own, the phrase was hanging a shingle right on their door, like putting your name up in an office building. And, you know, you're going to go to chamber of commerce meetings and rotary club meetings and network face to face and get people. And because of trademarks, what I do, I could represent clients from all over the country. I I realized I don't need that face-to-face. What I need is to be online where people can find me from all over. And so for the first few years, you know, I worked hard to try to stay on the first page or two of the natural, you know, Google results. And then Google AdWords came around and I would start buying ads and my website, you know, got better and better over time and the other thing that i saw at this time the other convergence was that small businesses were kind of left out of the intellectual property protection arena because it was so cost prohibitive you had to go to a big law firm you had to know what you know that you needed trademark or patent protection you had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get anywhere and I set out from day one to focus on small businesses and to focus on flat, predictable fees so that because I knew as a small business and not somebody who was, you know, wealthy from the start that the hardest thing about hiring a lawyer is that hourly bill. And like, okay, they're telling me it's going to cost this much to start. Maybe I can afford that. But what if it balloons into more and more and more and the hourly rates, you know, multiply quickly. And so the flat fee predictable cost targeting small businesses using online advertising and website was, you know, at the time pretty much unique. And, you know, I wish I could say that I was a visionary and realized it at the time that, that I set out to do all of those things. I fell into it a little bit and it worked out great. And I'm still doing the same thing today. You know, Costs have gone up a little bit. Websites gotten a little bit more sophisticated and social media and all the other things. But I'm still focused on serving small businesses, flat, predictable fees, great service. And of course, the online marketing has evolved from me coding HTML to now me having a podcast and videos and all of those things are edited and produced and writing a book and all of that other media.
1: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I look, I agree with you with the attorney thing. I think everybody who's ever hired one has had that bad experience. You know, I went through an estate probate case at one point when I was a much, much younger man. And I remember the law firm calling and updating me. And I was like, oh, that was so nice. They called and they updated me on stuff. And then I saw that they they dinged it against my retainer. And like, I was like, whoa, they're billing me in like eight minute increments or something like that. I was like, you got people got to talk faster next time. (laughs) Like, now I I felt like you druck out the information. So totally experienced with that, understand exactly what you're talking about. So good on you of leaning into the flat fee. Good on you of you know having to realize that the real estate was out there um, for people to find you on the internet, right? In the early days with search and just not a lot of people being there, first mover advantage on that. So One of the questions I have there, I guess is, and you kind of leaned into this, like this is still how you market today. This is still people who that find you today. I found intellectual property a little bit to be almost a chicken and egg conversation of do I have an idea and is that when I should reach out to somebody like you or do I have an idea that's ultimately marketable and I'm in the marketability phase of it and consumers are saying, hey, we like this thing. So do I got to prove it up a little bit or can it be earlier in the process before I reach out and, and who's reaching out and when are they reaching out to you?
0: Yeah, great question. So people reach out to me at all different stages, but ideally, ideally they're reaching out from the start because the earlier you protect it, the better off you are. And so, for example, with a brand name, before you even begin to think about launching it, when you're just stewing on possible brand names and brainstorming and coming up with what you think is going to be a great brand for this project, this product or service, that's when you really are best off starting the conversation with a lawyer to make sure that the name is actually available. And then you're not starting to build this whole project on something that could be on shaky grounds or that could be pulled out from under you once you have gone to market and committed all that money, you know, whether it's packaging or advertising and all all that time and energy, of course. So ideally people come to us from the outset and it's never, it's really never too early to begin the protection, but people come to us all the time. I mean, sometimes it's a restaurant that's been open for 10 years. Maybe they never knew about it. They never thought about it. They never could afford it, or they just figured, that's not going to affect us. We're one location. We don't have any dreams of growing. But then over time, things change. And maybe they do realize, oh, somebody wants to build another location, or maybe we'll franchise, or maybe we'll expand. And they realize the value. So they may come to us much later in the cycle of the business. And it's not too late to protect it. It just can be more challenging.
1: Sure, sure. It's almost like when, because I think You know, so somebody starting a business, one of the first things you think today, I guess, right, is, oh man, I need to hire the creative type. I need to come up with my little brand, my little logo. I need to see if my URL and I can get my domain and everything that kind of connects with it. I mean, I guess at that formational part, when you're doing that, not only do you need the creative side of it, but if you, you know, you think it's going to go anywhere, you probably ought to protect it a little bit, right? If you put the time and effort into to come up with the brand,
0: right? Exactly. And like you said, unfortunately there are costs. And so it is a bit of a Chicken and egg. Nobody wants to spend money before they're making money, but it really is insurance for that whole brand. And when you think about it, for the vast majority of companies, there are very few assets of the company that are more valuable or more important than the brand. I mean, everything that they do from customer service to the product itself, like you said, the website, the URL, the social media. I mean, everything ties together with the brand and if that brand gets pulled out from under you it could be a disaster
1: yeah absolutely totally makes sense hey, heaven forbid you know i i've tried to go and buy my name before my url for my name you know and that's it's uh somebody's got a hold of it and they won't sell it <laughs> i don't not exactly sure who that is but i know what you mean so you wrote a book um building a bold brand um Talk about that a little bit. What was the, uh, what made that uh, seem important to, to take on? Because writing a book and putting all this stuff that's inside your head down on paper is not easy.
0: Right. It's not easy. And I thought it was going to be easy, ironically, because I'd been blogging for many, many years. I'd reached 20 years in my career. And I thought, this is a great time to look back, take the best of the things that I've written and said and put it in a book. And because it's already on my blog, it won't be that hard. Then I realized when you want to make it really special and really flow and fine-tuned in a book, you basically have to start from scratch. So it was a lot more work than I set out to do, but in the end, it was tremendously rewarding because the feedback's been good. And it was really taking my experience advising, you know, thousands of brands over 20 years and being an entrepreneur myself and building my business and watching my clients businesses grow and taking all of that together and writing about the protections of a brand from the start all the way through the life cycle of a business but writing it With the legal in mind, but more from a business perspective, because nobody wants to just read legal jargon. Even lawyers don't want to read legal jargon most of the time. And so I wanted the book to be approachable to the entrepreneur, but to also talk about the legal aspects.
1: Sure, sure. Makes sense. And that's that's a good point. Nobody wants to have to read all this. The legal stuff is normally put in there. Uh, it's not the fun side to talk about. It's the protection side of almost everything, right? So we, we talk to a lot of attorneys in our world and a lot of it ha- deals around, you know, operating agreements, private placement memorandums and stuff, which are risk factors and costs. None of those things are opportunistic and they're not the fun things to talk about. Right. 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 So
0: everybody wants to CYA.
1: (laughs) That's right. It's all CYA today. So, so, okay. Very interesting. And so when we talked on the pre-call a little bit, you said that you had recently created a, um, a digital version or something of, of the book that's available.
0: Yeah. So I spent several months last year recording the whole book, uh, with me reading it in audio and video format. And then we packaged it together with beautiful editing with examples and images so that the book really comes to life. Um, And I've made it available for free. I'm big on sharing expertise, sharing content. So at buildingaboldbrand.com, anybody can see the book is broken into chapters and available for free on video. Like I said, I've always found um, that giving away content, whether it's originally blogging and then podcasts and then videos, that's led to tremendous success for me. A lot of lawyers come from the opposite of mentality of people are paying us for expertise. our expertise. Why would we share anything for free? And- You know, I believe that when we share, we're actually sharing why people, you know, need to hire an expert because it is really complicated. I can try to make it sound simple, but in the end, what I'm often doing is saying, you know, it's, it's, much less complicated if you work with an expert and you might be able to figure it out on your, own. just like I could read the tax code, but I'm not going to understand it. I'm not going to know where the loopholes are and where the danger areas are and all of those things, because, you know, that's not what I live and breathe every day.
1: Yeah, no, I I get it. And that's been, I guess there's been a historical changing of the, uh, of the mindset of some professional services industries, you know, um, particularly I would say, you know, you know, tax and 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 finance and maybe legal. You know, there's been this shift over the years to people saying, "Oh, maybe I can do this myself." Like legal Zoom, maybe they go and they it's this discounted. I mean, I think were there even legal documents one time available at the at like Office Depot and stuff, like a section where you could buy, you know, fill in yourself legal documents, right? And the proliferation of you know, do your taxes at home yourself. You don't need anybody. Twenty nine dollars, do Turbo Tax, and you get it back. And then everybody's doing these self-directed you know investments and stuff today and all the investment companies are making it sound like it's super easy for the for the clients to ultimately do it themselves you know I when somebody brings that up I always make an analogy you know I say hey you would you do that in the medical space right and I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, would you would you Google like when something was a symptom of yours and then think you found the remedy for it and included maybe some type of minimally invasive surgery or something? Would you do it on yourself? Like, does that make any sense, right?
0: Yeah, so- exactly. I go to a dentist for a reason. you know, I don't want to you know pull my own teeth out. <laughs>
1: yeah, and and you could do some of this stuff if you really wanted to do it. back in the day, it's you know people but but why would you do it? There's professionals that are trained to do those things that are you know that have experienced it and gone through that process you know dozens hundreds thousands of times and and their expertise and it could lead lead to value. So no I totally understand and I agree with you I am more in the camp of educate people talk about how you help people talk about the things you're doing if they see themselves in your story then that's potentially somebody that becomes a client right? The old methodology of gaining all the information acting like you know you're the only person that's got access to this stuff I think those Those days are dying or already dead, but there are still some professionals that are holding on to the the old way that business was done.
0: Yeah. And the legal field is usually very slow to adapt. They were slow to adapt to the internet and having websites. They're slow to adapt to flat fees. They're slow to adapt to this mentality. So good news is I'm able to take advantage of that before a lot of others.
1: There you go. It's good to be nimble and pivot.
0: So With
1: everything that you're doing, obviously, there's been, so just like the internet was a disruptor in the early to mid 90s, and you kind of saw that wave and positioned yourself in it, you know, there has certainly been some changes in the past few years. There's been, you know, crypto that's kind of come onto the space. There's been, you know, this this meta concept in this whole world. I'm sure that probably has had an impact on some of the branding and stuff that's going on and, and where people want to be and how they're protecting their intellectual property. You know, what are the, uh, I guess, and every coin has two sides, right? There's the risk side of that, but there's the opportunistic side of that. So where are the headwinds and where are the tailwinds coming up with as we're changing as a society and the way that we communicate with one another and the way that we pay for goods and services?
0: Yeah, I love that question. And the bottom line is that brands are just becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger part of our life every day and every year and it's entering all these new arenas but even even without those new arenas when you think about you know I bore my kids, right. When it, like showing them an old uh, video of the Lakers versus the Celtics championships, you know, in the eighties and you see, you know, how sparse the branding is and the commercials and everything. And now you, you know, watch the world series and there's, you know, the taco bell stolen base promotion in the middle of the game and the players, you know, in the NBA, right. Have advertising patches on their jerseys, which as a kid we thought would never happen that would you know that would ruin everything and like so we are just inundated with literally thousands and thousands of brand messages every day so the power of brands is more important than ever and then of course on our screens and on our phones they're everywhere i mean when you think about what's an app and you know when you go to look at your phone it's all these icons and logos and and brands that are behind all of these apps and features on your phone and on your software. And so that to me is the most fascinating part. But yes, we are also dealing with how do these things evolve with NFTs and being in the metaverse? And what is that? Do you need new types of protection? Does the law need to catch up? How is it going to address it? Um, And all of these things. And That's what makes Trademark Law really fun is that it's like always new and different all the time. But it's the same fundamental principles of protecting a brand. You know, the golden arches of McDonald's are the golden arches regardless of where they are. And McDonald's is going to be able to stop somebody from using the golden arches for something related to food, whether it's driving by a storefront or in a video game or in some sort of alternative meta- universe the golden arches are still going to be the golden arches
1: yeah makes well unless of course and you probably this is I, this is probably famous somewhat in your space there was that movie coming to america the eddie murphy movie back in the day and they said well we don't have the golden arches we have the golden arcs and they have the big mac and we have the big mick
0: right yeah yeah <laughs> they had some uh big kahunas going with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, skirting
1: a little too close to it right there, certainly. But uh, but you know, so no, totally get it. And that's the way I think that I view the internet, right? So the internet is just an extension of what can be done in the physical world. And so if we're going to protect it and it makes sense to protect it in the field ph- in the physical, in the real world, the internet, if done appropriately, is just an extension and therefore meta and all that stuff, just an additional extension. So I think that I think that makes a ton of sense. Um Any specific uh, nuance that is being, um, you know, I think you constantly hear from people, this time is different. This is it's different this time. Right. So is there some misunderstandings about this new frontier of online and meta and all that? that people are trying to kind of, uh, I guess, land grab would be the, you know, this new real right. estate out there is some misunderstandings that really have tenants in fundamental law, like they've been around forever, but people are
0: like, Oh, but it's different because of this. Are you seeing any of that incongruency? I think the biggest place I'm seeing that is with NFTs, you know, and the explosion of NFTs about a year ago, and that's calmed down quite a bit now, but um, A lot of people getting involved in NFTs on both sides, both creating and launching and selling them and on buying them, didn't actually know what they were selling or buying, because that relates primarily to copyright. And that's not my core expertise. But the issue really came down to what was in the agreements in terms of with the artist or creator and the NFT platform, and with the purchaser and the NFT platform and the owner, in terms of what rights were actually being granted and being acquired, and so with the board ape, you know NFTs, we're seeing, um, we're going to see, I think, a variety of litigation because people weren't quite clear what rights they were given and what they can do to monetize what they've acquired. And it's the same thing in other NFTs as well. And so that's a really interesting area of the law that will continue to evolve over the next couple of years.
1: I would agree because I consider myself a decently educated person and I don't understand how somebody thought they were going to buy a Digital impression of a bored ape for the price that some of those people paid for that, and then how that was going to monetize for them over the long term—I too big for me to kind of wrap my head around a little bit, or I'm just not educated enough.
0: Well, I understand the supply and demand and limited, you know, limited quantity portion of it, just like a Picasso or a Van Gogh, right? If the, if there's only one. It's a painting. It might be a beautiful painting, but how do they value that? Some of them are worth one million, and some are worth twenty million. I have no idea. But it, you know, who's to say that that couldn't apply to a piece of digital art as well? The other layer of it, though, is that when people were buying these images, is then can they make a reproduction of it and sell that? Can they make a stuffed animal based on the bored ape? graphic that they bought and licensed that stuffed animal to Target to sell nationwide. And what are the rights in there? So again, there's a lot of copyright and a lot of contractual law in terms of what was in the agreements. And a lot of them, probably when this exploded so quickly, they didn't really, nobody thought through all of the issues that were going to come up. So there's a lot of holes in those initial agreements in terms of uh, gray area and who owns what.
1: Okay, I can see that a little bit. That's a good argument. I guess, you know, if somebody bought one of those board eight NFTs, and I would imagine the younger generation, not myself, know a lot more about what those are, and you were to create a physical version of it that was sold at Target or something per se, in a way, it would almost show up like the Beanie Babies of my generation, right? Because a bunch of young kids would go, oh, I know what that bored ape is, and I know what it came from, and I would like to own a stuffed animal version of it. So, okay, I can connect that dot a little bit. Um, you know, I, I was never a Beanie Baby collector, so that's <laughs> what <yes. laughs> so,
0: Yeah, okay. baseball cards, though. I mean, baseball cards is similar with the values, you know, it has to do with ex- rarity and exclusivity and... Yep. That's something I could relate to a little bit, although I wish I still had them all.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in pristine condition, right? Right. I mean, I saw, I think there was a 60 Minutes expose on a kid that uh, was basically not going to go to college because he'd become such a big baseball card collector. And and his collection was starting to shift to these, um, I don't know if they're NFTs, but they're like three to five second clips of like a guy doing a thing in the NBA. And I guess he had one of like, Giannis, the guy that plays for the Milwaukee mm-hmm. Bucks, like showing this clip of him like dunking. So it was like two seconds of something, but he owned that clip or whatever, right? And I guess he paid like a million bucks for it. And so anytime that little clip plays, like, you know, I guess there's some rights to, I don't know exactly how that works, but I was like, well, that's really interesting. So, you know, I just know that market has gotten hurt a little bit recently and because I think it's it's very correlated with the crypto space a little bit and and crypto has really kind of gotten uh, it you know kind of hard here recently it's had some bad optics in that space
0: yeah and i won't pretend to understand the economics of all of that
1: no, me either. But it's, um, you know, it, it's terrible that it's happened to people, but it's ironic in a way that people would want um, decentralized finance and become huge advocates of it. And then the one thing that they want when they lose their money is, well, we wanted centralized finance.
0: So, <laughs> right. That's the, maybe yeah. not all reg- regulation is bad regulation. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. Maybe there's a balancing act there somewhere. Well, very cool. So, you know, I think this has been extremely interesting. I think you've shared a lot of great information. Anything that I didn't ask that you think listeners would should need to know about, uh, you know, about copyrights, branding.
0: So I would just uh, emphasize that businesses should think about intellectual property protection, not only when they start, but you know, at least annually, almost like a annual checkup at the doctors, like evaluate, okay, have we invented anything in the last year that maybe we should be looking into patent protection? Have we launched any new products or services or logos or brands where we should be looking into trademark protection? Have we released any new books or webinars or other content that's extremely uh, unique where we should look into the copyright protection and to always think about these things because not only do you want to ensure that nobody can get away with copying these things, right? And knocking off your business, but they are tremendous assets to the business itself. Someday, if the business is ever sold or transferred or um, does a round of investment, having these assets protected and locked up as like as actual tangible assets with numbers assigned by the government makes them that much more valuable and that much more interesting. And so then there's a wealth of opportunities for businesses.
1: Sure. That makes a ton of sense. So there's the opportunity. And so the other side would be, what's the biggest mistake or the biggest, you know, that a business owner makes in regards to, you know, building a bold brand, that a step that they don't take at the right time or that they just don't think to take? What's the biggest mistake?
0: The biggest mistake is coming up with a boring name um, or not searching or putting any effort into coming up with a name and making sure it's unique in your industry. It doesn't have to be the most unique, creative, made-up name, but you want to have a good degree of creativity and uniqueness in your name, as I say, to make it a bold name, because that, A, makes it easier to protect, and B, makes it easier to stand out from the crowd in this sea of Branding that we're exposed to all the time.
1: There you go. There you go. Bold brand. So not like tractor supply company.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Or yeah. Yeah. Pennsylvania Landscaping Company,
1: you know? I mean, look, I'm not telling you those can't turn into successful businesses, but it doesn't jump off the page when you hear it,
0: right? Right. And not only that, if I were to, you know, search it online today, who knows how many things are going to come up when I search for Pennsylvania Landscaping Company. I may not even find the the one that has that as the name um, in the first hundred results.
1: Yep. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Well, Eric, I really appreciate you coming on today. I think this was a a fun and interesting conversation. I think our listeners will think that it's great. Um, Everybody today, this was uh, Eric Pelton, um, branding attorney. Remember, he's got the book that he created all this free content. You can basically get a sneak peek of what's going on inside of his mind, building a bold brand available at uh, www.com building bold right? There you go. Couldn't have made it easier for us, right?
0: There you go. Like, you know, I'm all about the branding.
1: <laughs> there you go. All about the branding. Well, Eric, I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with our listeners and um, glad to have you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. So everybody, once again, this was Matt Chancey. This was another episode of the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast. Um, until next week, take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.